Which please turn with me to your study outline. And as you're turning, let me welcome the uh, thousand plus people that every week join us online. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us for our study today, as well as our friends at First Baptist Church in Arco, Idaho, and also Purpose Church in Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us as well. We're continuing our series, The Money Challenge. And as I've said every week, there's a book that goes with this, uh, looks just like this. And if you haven't gotten a hold of that, I'm going to bug you to death until you go out and get there. Every week, I've been challenging you to get a hold of this. If you're a visitor, please get a hold of this book that goes along with the series. There's a $7 donation. That's the cost to us. But don't worry about that. If you can't afford it, consider it a gift from our church to you. And get a hold of that book because I believe it's going to be so, so uh, helpful to you. Now, I gave you a little bit of a hook Last Sunday, I'm going to give you another hook today, uh, the similar one, but I want to put a little twist on it. If you get this book and run out and look at page 68, so write down there on your study outline, write the number 68, run out there, get a hold of this book, 68. Here's what I want you to do. If you do what's on page 68, if you take what the average American spends on lottery tickets in 18 years... And I'm not talking just the average American that plays the lottery, but all Americans, 300 million plus of us. If you take what the average Americans, over the average of 300 million Americans, if you take that average of what we spend on lottery tickets over an 18-year period and do what it says on page 68, rather than having a one in a million odds to win the lottery, I can guarantee you almost 100% odds that you will win the lottery during your lifetime. Let's call it 99%. And so rather than one in a million odds, I will give you 99 out of 100 odds, especially if you're young. The younger you are, the more this guarantee holds, okay? But get, run out there, get a hold of this, look at page 68, take what the average American gives in, in, uh, in 18 years to the lottery, do what it says on page 68, and I can guarantee uh, that you will win the lottery. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Now, there are three parts to the money challenge. Two weeks ago, we talked about give generously. Uh, Last Sunday, we talked about save wisely. And now today, we're talking about live uh, appropriately or spend appropriately. And as I said last Sunday, God's timing is unbelievable. I wish I could say that we were smart enough to do this and that we were strategic enough and that we were smart enough, but it didn't happen that way. God just did it. We had nothing to do with it, but it just so happens that we're talking about spending appropriately smack dab in between Black Friday and Cyber Monday. How do you like that? And so God stuck this. He wanted, you're not here by accident. He wanted you and me to hear this uh, he wanted my family to hear this right in between Cyber Monday and, and uh, Good Friday. So it's absolutely a perfect timing. And by the way, I just want to say something. Even here we are on a holiday weekend, and so many of you here this morning. Can I just tell you just reason number 1,000 why I am so blessed and proud to be your pastor? My pastor friends always tell me, oh, my goodness. They said, whenever you, we speak on finances, attendance goes like, like way down. And I, that never happens to us here at Purpose Church. It holds strong. Sometimes it even increases. But I keep my mouth shut at pastor's meetings because they would beat me up and throw me out of the parking lot if I said that. If I said, oh, that never happens to me, I just keep quiet. But you guys are just amazing how you hunger, your hunger from the truth 
uh, causes you to come week by week through a series like this, even when it can stretch you a little bit. And I want you to know, I pray this every Sunday, or I should remember to pray this every Sunday, but particularly on a Sunday like this. Anything that's not of God, I hope you forget by the time you get out to your car or you get to your adult Bible study class. I hope you forget. But anything that is of God, I hope you'll remember, you'll take to heart, and it'll, it'll change your life because I believe that if it's from God, it's going to bring blessing to you. Now, uh, what were some of the cars that were mentioned? Anybody want to shout out when Pastor Jared uh, gave us the question, what car would you most like to drive? Anybody? Okay, a Lamborghini. Very nice taste over here. Anybody else? Okay, what's that? A driverless car. Oh, that's going to take me a while to get used to that one. That is awesome. Great. Okay. What's another one? An El Camino. We had an El Camino growing up. I had an El Camino. I drove an El Camino. Okay. It had a terrible um, a choke on it, you know, that just the thing would never start. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Yo, okay, Sue Martinez has read the book ahead of time. Okay, if you've read, okay, <laughs> you've read my mind then. You've read my mind. Okay, if, if you've read the book, and by the way, feel great about all your answers. As a matter of fact, the Bible's going to say in a moment that he gives us all good things to enjoy, even our Lamborghini, okay? But the, the answer to this question from the book and from this series and from what we're going to look at in God's Word is any car, nice or run down and beat up that has this bumper sticker on it, okay? Don't laugh, it's paid for, okay? So any car that has that on it, that's the, uh, that's the right answer uh, to that. Um, Rob, Bob Petusky writes, there's a sense that when one lives beyond their means, things have become their God. Things have become their God. Warren Buffett uh, writes, do not save what is left after spending, but spend what is left after saving. And that's really what we studied last Sunday. But if you go two Sundays ago, we would add something to what Warren Buffett said. Part two, do not give what is left after spending, but give what is left. I'm all mixed up here. But at any rate, uh, but spend what is left after giving, right? I should have that written up there so I keep it straight. Uh, Warren Buffett would say the saving part. We would say saving and the giving part. Uh, Ken Hubbard, and by the way, this is not a typo, all right? It's not supposed to be Ken. It's not supposed to be Kim. It's Ken. Don't know what his parents were thinking, but that's his name. All right. The safe way to double your money is to fold it over once and put it back in your pocket once again. I like that one. Now, um, Annie Leonard wrote a book called The Story of Stuff. And here's what she writes. Shortly after World War II, the government and big corporations were trying to figure out how they could ramp up the economy. Retail analyst Victor Lebeau articulated the solution that's become the norm for the whole system. He said, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and using of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. I'm always interested this weekend of the year is they trumpet uh, what the retail percentage increase was or decrease or if it's flat. And it's like, yay, this weekend we are up 6% over last year. Uh, the economy you know, with retail is just on fire uh, this weekend. 
And whenever you see that, it's almost like you feel like a bad American if you're not spending out of your mind, you know. If you're not running up debt on your credit card, if you're not, it's like you're not doing your part to stimulate the economy. And there's this whole sense in which the kind of the American way is to spend as much as we can, and that will help stimulate our economy. In the United States, we have more stuff than ever before. But polls show our national happiness is actually declining. Our national happiness peaked in the 1950s, the very same time that this consumption mania exploded. We have more stuff, but less time for the things that really make us happy, like friends, family, and leisure time. We're working harder than ever. I I get such a kick out of this. Some analysts say we have less leisure time than at any time since feudal society. The last time we had this little leisure time, we were working the fields around the king's palace, okay, with the moat around it and the walls and everything. That's the last time in the Middle Ages that we had this little leisure time. And you know what are the two main activities we do with our scant leisure time? We watch TV and we go, and we go shopping. Now, the Bible has an antidote to this. This is God's owner's manual. It'll always tell you how to live in a way that brings the greatest fulfillment. God is not a spoil sport. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. He wants our life to be fulfilling. He's not just saying, hey, you out there having a good time, cut it out. All right? He's saying, here's the way, if you follow the owner's manual, that you'll have the most contentment. You'll have the most enjoyment. You'll have the most freedom. Paul, who was a leader in the church 2,000 years ago, was writing to another pastor by the name of Timothy uh, in the first century A.D. in the Greco-Roman world uh, surrounding the Mediterranean uh, Sea area. And he says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. He says, when you pursue God, Augustine, who was a pastor in 400 A.D., 1,600 years ago, he said, our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in thee. And Paul says, if you pursue godliness instead of stuff with contentment, that is great gain. It'll bring contentment and it'll be great gain within your life. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. That is, there's nothing wrong with money as we're going to see in a moment. But when the pursuit of our life is to get rich, it it opens the doors for temptations to take shortcuts. And it gets us into trouble. It's a trap. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It brings trouble into our lives. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. This is the most misquoted verse in all the Bible. Uh, with the possible exception of one, and I'll put a little PS onto it in just a second, they actually ask Americans what their favorite verse in the Bible was. And the number one answer to that, what's your favorite verse of the Bible, is God helps those who help themselves. But the problem is, it's not in the Bible, okay? Uh, it's been just saying by Benjamin Franklin. It's, it's, not, it's, not in, it's not in the Bible. And so as far as ones that are in the Bible, this is the most misquoted one. People hear that, that money is the root of all evil. How many of you have ever heard that? Money is the root of all evil. Yeah, it's a, it's a very common saying. Bible never says that. Uh, money is not evil. Money can do awesome, great things. Money can, you know, take your family on a much-needed vacation. M- money can feed your family, put clothing on your family. Money can provide 8,146 events on this campus 
that help people, everyone, everywhere follow Jesus or feed people in the name of Jesus or fight human trafficking in the name of Jesus or tutor kids after school in, in the name of Jesus or, or stand up for life in, in the name of Jesus. Money can send 1,314 boxes to little kids in Indonesia, Peru, and the Philippines. Money is awesome. Money can do wonderful things. It doesn't say money is the root of the all evil. It says what? The love of. Repeat that with me. The love of money. It's when we make it our destination rather than a means to an end. It's when we make it our end rather than a means to an end. Uh, loving money. Making money the number one pursuit of our lives or possessions or materialism or stuff. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, when they make that their God, have wandered from the faith. Boy, you'll see Christians that are on fire for Jesus. But their heart's divided between Jesus and stuff. And it waters down their priorities. It hinders them in fulfilling their destiny and the purpose for which God made them. For some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let's skip down to verse 17. Paul writes to Timothy. Now, this is a pastor writing to another pastor, so a more mature pastor uh, writing to a, a, a younger pastor. Command those who are rich in this present world. Now, immediately, as we said two weeks ago, we check out because we say, well, that's not us. But remember, we countered that a couple of weeks ago, and I gave you stats on who's part of the one percenters. Well, now let's change it up a little bit, and how about, are you a part of the two percenters? If someone makes $25,000 a year, just about 2000 a month. If you make 2000 a month household income, you are in the top 2% of the world's wage earners. Uh, put it another way, 98% of the world's population lives on less than $25,000 a year, less than $2,000 a month. So we are most likely, almost everybody here is in the category of the rich. Command those who are rich, that's most of us, in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. It's uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, isn't that interesting? We think of God as a celestial killjoy sitting up in heaven, and he spots anybody having a good time and says, hey, you down there, cut it out. No, that's not the God we serve. He's the one that wants us to, for our enjoyment. He gives us resources for our enjoyment. And so, but he just knows that, that stuff and money make great servants, they make lousy gods. When they're servants, you know, anything that we say we own now owns us. Anything we think we own now owns us. But when we see ourselves as managers of that which God owns, that gives us freedom actually to enjoy it. Stuff and money makes lousy gods, but it makes great servants as we are managing over what God, what God owns. Uh, verse, verse 18. Command them, that's us, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous. The generous life is a life of freedom and enjoyment and contentment, the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give to us, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, that is for heaven, for eternity. And I love this last phrase, one of my favorite in the Bible, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Is that awesome? Let's read just the bold part out loud together. So that they may take hold of the life 
that is truly life. God says, this is truly life. The generous life. Generous people transform the world. Take hold of the life that is truly life. Don't follow false lives. Follow, take hold of the thing that is truly life. Uh, Sky Jathani writes, people have not always lived this way. Consumers, like the goods they buy, were made, not born. The advent of mass production during the Industrial Revolution created previously unimaginable quantities of goods, far more than the market needed. Manufacturers suddenly needed a way to artificially increase demand for their products. Advertising was born. Ads became the profits of capitalism, not P-R-O-F-I-T-S, but profits like Isaiah, like Jeremiah. Ads became the profits of capitalism, turning the hearts of the people toward the goods they didn't know they needed. They subtly or overtly promised more comfort, status, success, happiness, and even sex to people who purchased their wares. In 1897, not 1997, in 1897, one newspaper reader said that in the past, we skipped over ads unless the, some need compelled us to read them. That is, the only time we looked at ads pre-1897 was like, okay, I, I, I need something, so I'm going to go look at an ad uh, with regard to some different prices for that item. Now we read to find out what we really want. Somebody said that in 1897. Today, according to the New York Times, each American is exposed to 3,500 desire-inducing advertisements every day, 3,500 ads a day, promising us that satisfaction is just one purchase away. Rodney Clapp writes, the customer is schooled in insatiability. He or she is never to be satisfied, at least not for long. The consumer is tutored that people basically consist of unmet needs that can be appeased by commodified goods and experiences. So the Bible teaches that wealth is uncertain. And Jesus told a story uh, to illustrate that in Luke 12, uh, verse uh, 13. Someone in the crowd, so Jesus is preaching, and someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay? I want you to know, as a pastor for 30-some years now, I have seen wonderful families get split apart when there's a will, somebody dies, and there's a will or a state. How many of you have ever seen that happen? Oh, my goodness. It just, it just breaks my heart. Family that, members that got along. And all of a sudden, there was some money involved and figuring out how to divide the inheritance. My kids are all home this weekend. They're all home from Peru, Seattle, Washington, D.C., and Palmdale. Everybody's home for, for Thanksgiving. And I, I, I tell my kids, I, want you to, I, I tell my kids, if I die and you in any way fight over the paltry estate that I will leave behind, I don't believe in ghosts, but I will ask God for an exception. And I will say, I will come down and I will haunt your nightmares. I will come down and make your, your life miserable. Don't you dare divide our family over, over something as silly as money. And yet 2,000 years this has been going on. Jesus, hey, Jesus is a radical. So he's going to tell my brother to be like Jesus to me. It's like the two little boys, they sat down and they had one pancake and then the other little boy had to wait and they were fighting over the one pancake and the, and the mother said to the little boys, you know, what, what would Jesus do? He would give up his, his pancake to the other brother. And so the older brother turns to the younger and says, okay, Joe, you be Jesus. Okay, everybody, want, everybody, everybody wants everybody else to be Jesus. And so he says to him, he says, tell my brother, split the inheritance. Jesus doesn't take the bait. 
he goes for the deeper issue. He doesn't take the surface problem. He digs beneath the surface. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? He could have done it, but he said, I'm not going to waste my time on that. Let's go, let's go for the real issue. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable, this story. He tells a story to illustrate the sermon point. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, the Bible teaches that wealth is uncertain. It also teaches that stuff doesn't satisfy. Do you know that an entire book, out of 66 books in the Bible, one entire book is written just for this point that stuff doesn't satisfy? It's the book of Ecclesiastes, written by a man, Solomon, who had it all, did it all, experienced it all, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes to say that stuff just uh, does not satisfy. Uh, That great theologian, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, once said this. Your home, I love this. Your home is a garbage processing center where new things are purchased and slowly demoted through various stages of trashification until you're done. Starts out, you bring it home, you put it on the kitchen table, you read the instructions, you tell everyone in the house about it. And then some time goes by (laughs) and you realize you're not going to be so keen on drying out fruit and storing it in your basement. (laughs) It seems so awesome. I saw that thing, and I want to spend my life drying fruit and storing it in your basement, as you thought you were going to be. So therefore, the object is demoted to the closet where it lands on the floor. You start stepping on it to reach newer things that are just beginning on their journey to being junk as, as well. Um, eight, eight reasons why buying stuff won't make you happy. Eight reasons for buying stuff won't make you happy. Number one, they all begin to fade. All possessions are temporary by nature. They look shiny and new in the car, but immediately, as soon as the package is open, they begin to perish, spoil, or fade. You ever notice how you get something home, you take the package off, it just doesn't look as sweet as it did in the store. Number two, there's always something new right around the corner. New models, new styles, new improvements, and new features. From clothes and cars to kitchen gadgets and technology, our world moves forward and planned obsolescence makes sure our most recent purchase will be out of use sooner rather than later. Think your iPhone when you think of that. Number three, each purchase adds worry to our lives. Every physical item we bring into our lives represents one more thing that can be broken, scratched, or stolen. Number four, possessions require maintenance. The things we own require time, energy, and focus. They need to be cleaned, organized, managed, and maintained. And as a result, they often distract us from the things that truly do bring us lasting happiness. Number five, our purchases cost us more than we realize. In stores, products are measured in dollars and cents. But as Henry David Thoreau once said, the price of anything is the amount of life that you exchange for it. 
We don't buy things with money. We buy them with hours from our lives. Number six, we discover other people aren't all that impressed. Subconsciously, and sometimes even consciously, we expect our newest purchases will impress other people. They will notice our new car, computer, jacket, or shoes. But most of the time, they are less impressed than we think. Instead, most of them are too busy trying to impress you with their newest purchase. Number seven, someone else always has more. The search for happiness in possessions is always short-lived because it is based on faulty reasoning that buckles under its own weight. If happiness is found in buying stuff, those with more will always be happier. The game can never be won. And number eight, shopping does not quench our desire for contentment. Contentment is never found in the purchase of more stuff. Our overflowing closets and drawers stand as proof, no matter how much we get, it's never enough. And so what we need to do as we begin to wrap up is to ask a better question and to seek a better treasure. First of all, ask a better question. We typically ask, how much uh, should, should I give? But instead, we should be asking the question, how much should I keep? And Jesus said we should seek a better treasure. He said in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, this is part of that sermon. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's read that out loud together the whole verse. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.